Hey everybody, welcome back to the DC3Cast. I am Brian, with me as always are Vince and Zach. We are here to talk about the comics that came out on August 23rd, 2017. If you haven't read them yet, pause the podcast, go read them, and come back. We are recording this on Jack Kirby's 100th birthday, so happy birthday, King. Thank you for everything. Literally, thank you for everything. Um, We're going to start this week with our reviews. There's not really a ton of news to get into. Uh, so that starts with Action Comics number 986. This is part two of the only human arc, the sort of fill-in arc of the book, written by Rob Williams, illustrated by Guillaume March. And uh, gentlemen, what did you think of this? I know we, we were not so hot on March's art for the first half of this two-part story. Did we come around at all in the story? I think I came around on the story... <laughs> More so than the art, although I I think I liked the art this time around better a little bit too. I I think I did too. I think I, I kind of said this the last time we talked about it, but um, there's aspects of Guillaume March's art that I really really like. I think he's a great sequential storyteller. First of all, like I think he does some really great stuff panel to panel. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about like when Superman is falling in space and uh, Lex like sa- rescues him, and then like the Lex is slowly turning back to his like human form because he became like Dark Side Lex for a little bit. Right. That entire sequence, like, it was really well done from like an artistic sequential storytelling standpoint. Um. I think the art's I think the art's really good. There's just some there's just some funky stuff every once in a while with the faces, I think. Mm-hmm. But like there's one where Superman is saying, Think Lex, you're the smartest man on the planet. Your circuitry is in that mind tick. You must be able to come up with a way to break this. And just Superman's got this like <laughs> look on his face that doesn't really match <laughs> I don't. Superman looks like shocked, and the way that his teeth like curl ra- around inside of his mouth, and you can see them. I just feel like it's a a very awkward. You know, Guillaume March can do some handsome character work, but I feel like in uh, in like a twenty page story, he slips up with a couple of those per issue where the it just looks funny. You know? Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm with that next page. That kind of like small panel where like. Lex is lecturing him, and Superman's just like, just like super smug too. Yeah, it was like yeah. another like weird like expression doesn't quite match what's going on. Right, right. And I think, but I think like, I mean, I'll take Guillaume March art every week. You're just always going to get a couple of those little funny things. I think. Yeah, I, the way I, I see I it, think... I really appreciate it. Like I said, the sequencing more this time yeah i also think he did a great job of transitioning lex to and from the dark side character like the the changes were very subtle and then all of a sudden you're like holy shit he's dark side now and then i i just feel like he did a nice job with the with the character work on lex in particular but then again you know there's a couple of things that you know the the aforementioned superman expressions there's also when when superman and lex are coming back to earth and Superman, like, he comes to, he has the kryptonite pulled from him, 
and then he's he has Lex like on his shoulder, where Lex is making this crazy facial expression. Uh, it just does not fit. But the art is interesting looking. It's dynamic. It is. It's very comic booky. <laughs> I can see you both just got to that that page, and you see the face he's making. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you know, like it's just it's. It's super fun comic booking, and while the story had its ups and downs, we got to see like Superman and Lex fight some tigers and uh, and do some crazy shit, and it was better than your average Jurgens issue of uh, of action. Oh, for sure, and like you know, in the kind of description, we build it as like a fill-in issue, but. I feel it was actually pretty important, I think, for things. Yeah, that the Mr. Oz stuff at the end, I I don't know that you learned a whole lot from it, but it sets up the next issue. Mm-hmm. I mean, did we learn anything? Like, Well, he uses what looks to be some kind of like heat vision. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we have a theory about that, and, and I, it's the same... Brian, you thought that Mr. Oz was Con- – you wrote an article about it. Yeah. That you thought he was Connell, right? Yes. And I, I, I feel like this worked that idea. It doesn't – nothing that out now proves it, but I feel like it certainly supports that idea. Yeah. It's definitely – I've seen the comics internet double down on, like, oh, he's a Kryptonian now, which yeah. is – you know, I've seen – there's still like a litany of you know possible people. Jarrell is still really far up there. I've heard Mono. I'm still you know banking on Prime, but like I we don't have to get into this too much. But I've kind of with Mister Oz, I've kind of come to the conclusion that I don't think like any of these theories make a lot of sense, and I don't think I'm going to be super satisfied with the reveal. I think it's going to be a, be like a, a Mitzel Pit like situation all over again. <laughs> yeah. Here's my question. Um, I don't know what you guys think? Yeah. I, I, I'm, no, I think that's fair. Yeah. I, I I'm 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 right with you guys on that. My big question here is, aside from Doomsday Clock, which we know is the Watchmen tie-in, has every other Watchmen tease been just a red herring for us? <sighs> so far, yeah. Yeah, the bu- I mean the button really was it was the button was really a MacGuffin for something that didn't really have much to do with Watchmen. It was a flashpoint. Yeah, thing. yeah, and in Titans, you know, we had those um, kind of like Manhattan teases and something something about um, Abracadabra being the ancestor of, um, or no, I guess the descendant of. Dr. Manhattan or something like that or was what was implied I forgot all about that actually <laughs> yeah one way I don't know he was tied to Dr. Manhattan somehow and then I mean there's like no way that Mr. Oz is Ozymandias right uh, no I don't think so I mean that's 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 the too obvious thing that won't happen. But although I do you, think we'll see Ozymandias, I think. 
Eventually. Eventually. Yeah. I think I think they still want you to think it could have been Ozymandias. The heat vision is sort of a dead giveaway that's not. Yeah. Yeah. Um anyway, that brings us to Batgirl number fourteen, written by Hope Larson, illustrated by Chris Wildgoose. This is the beginning of a Babs and Dick story that goes back to their early days in Gotham together. And uh, I think we've all been pretty effusive about our love for this book and specifically Wild Goose's work on it. And this issue, to me, really, really held up to the standard that the book has been setting so far. I really, really enjoyed this issue. What did you guys think? Um, DC3 catnap right here. This is great. (laughs) Um, This is on par with the with like the Nightwing series in terms of like its quality and kind of like the follow-up arc I needed to what's been going on in Nightwing more so than like what we're actually getting. Yeah. Not not to knock Nightwing, but like this is the, I need that. I need that Dick and Barb stuff. Yeah. Yeah. This is, um, it's so it's, it, (laughs) it's really, but just the stuff, seeing Dick in the old Robin costume again and seeing, like, a younger Babs was just so, like, there's that part where, where Babs says, whatever, you're a dick, you know. And, and <laughs> like, you have no idea. idea. Yeah. That Just the way that their faces are drawn, especially, like, Dick's smile, is such a throwback to when I remember reading, like, you know, the Brian Q. Miller Batgirl and, like, just a more innocent time in the DCU. <laughs> and, like, they're really re- they're really recapturing something that feels both, like, vintage in some way, but also also modern, you know? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Like, this looks like... so. What this, Chris Wildgoose's style is, like, so much... It's a very modern style, you know? Um... And yet he can get into this world where it's a little bit muted and the characters seem a little bit more innocent, you know? Um, it's fantastic. Yeah, this is very good. Chris Wildgoose is kind of another one of those ones that I think should be spoken of in the you know same sentences as like Martinez and um, and Schmidt and and you and know, those guys who kind of and him, yeah who have come up in Rebirth and just done really great things. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Guys, there's a scene that takes place in a place called the Mad Haberdashery. Yep. <laughs> and everyone's named after the hat that they're wearing. Yep. Pork it's so pie. Great. Pork I will pie say and Stetson. The one knock I have on this issue has almost nothing to do with the issue's actual content. I really don't like the Robin costume. That Dick is oh, wearing you all, yeah, you always say that. But this time, especially, I, I want you guys to turn. It's it's in the like it's it's in the second flashback or the, the last flashback. So the one where where Dick and Babs are getting are on the rooftop together. I just want you mm-hmm. to look at this costume. He has like an upside down triangle pointing to his dick for <laughs> like for no reason. There is no reason that should be in that costume. <laughs> Well, you know what? That's only like that's not in every panel either, or in every page. Like if you look at the page before that, it's not there. 
He's clearly subtly unzipped between panels. <laughs> clearly. Yeah. It's, you know, um, there's all those like, weird, like, yellow swatches on it. I just think it's a really ugly costume design. Um, but again, like, that's not, that has no bearing on my enjoyment of the issue. It's just a weird artistic choice. See, I, yeah, I will. I think that this is the best that this costume has looked. Babs's costume um, looked great. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. But I, I think know, Jack, oh. I think I think you're right about Dick's costume too. Like this is the best it's looked, and it's because anytime an artist simplifies it a little bit, like I've seen other artists draw this one, and like those lines and those patches and swatches become three-dimensional to some artists. And so it mm-hmm. looks like, it almost looks like uh, when Liefeld used to draw pockets and pouches on everything, you know? Right, yeah. Th- this is a similar idea, but when an artist simplifies it down, like like Chris Wildgoose, it, it, it does much better, I think. Yeah. There's something about this costume that I, I don't know what it is, but I, I have a soft spot for it, and I think it's because it reminds me of, like, a Robin action figure I had when I was a little kid, and I can't place, like, what, like, what it was connected to, and it probably actually doesn't look anything like it, but it it reminds me of it. This is reminiscent Um, of the original, like, when Tim Drake went from wearing the short shorts to the first Tim Drake, like, pants Robin costume. I uh-huh. feel like it's most similar to that, but you know it, it tries to but make more it more complex. Yeah, yes, exactly. more New Fifty Two esque. Yeah, yeah. Not now, like I totally like when we first. I don't remember when we first saw it. I know it played like really prominently in um, Batman and Robin Eternal. We saw yeah. it a bunch then. Um, yeah, and yeah, I I didn't like it there, but here it almost kind of works for me. It plays on some kind of like part of nostalgia in me that I can't quite peg. That's fair enough. Yeah, I agree. But overall, I think that Larson did a really nice job writing the relationship between Dick and Babs. I mm-hmm. feel like oftentimes their romance is treated as either like this this um, like barb filled like. Uh, like, like like how Keith Giffen would write it, like just constantly like them trading little insults at each other, or they're treated as like the long lost loves that never were. And I think neither of those really work. I think this draws a nice sort of mid mid like place between those two, where there is definitely the sarcasm and the uh, and the you know wit that is true with both of these characters, but there's also some real tenderness there, and I, I just I think mm-hmm. like it worked really really well. Yeah, yeah, I think I think so too, man. It's good that you brought up Giffen because we're gonna get Geek Giffen really hard this week. <laughs> yeah, I want to say one more thing. I loved the uh, uh, <laughs> Commissioner Gordon as Psycho Dad. Yep, <laughs> <laughs> opening his door with like the crazy eyes. Yeah, uh, so great. Psycho Dad, Psycho Dad. <laughs> Well, boys, let's uh, let's get Jergens. It's time for Batman Beyond number eleven. I didn't read this book. I paged through it a little bit. Uh, written by Dan Jergens, illustrated by Bernard Chang, uh, Vince or Zach. Did either of you read this book? I straight up read it. You did. I did. 
I had to see what happened to Goliath. I had to, I read it from my boy Goliath. <laughs> well, Goliath. It looks like he's okay on the last page, so he is. They of course so the the issue opens and they're like, You killed Goliath and it definitely looked in the last issue like he straight up killed him. And uh but it's comics, you know, so you never know. And uh but I just thought like <laughs> Even even if he didn't really kill him, it was like surprisingly brutal for like he just did it with no fanfare, you know. And then later you found out it was just like a faint, you know, and uh and Goliath's okay in the end. And basically they kind of like kiss and make up essentially, Damien and Bruce. Um it, So it Damien was... is good again? <laughs> Goliath Howell. Um, <laughs> yeah, he's good again. And and Bruce is like, I want you to come with us, Damien. And he's like, no, I can't do that, Father, because um, yeah, they're going to reuse me with another uh, heel turn in, you know, a dozen issues or so. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but no, it, it was okay. It wasn't offensively bad the way that this book sometimes has been. Um, Bernard Chang was still on art. So I feel like he's only taken a, 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 an issue off here and there. Like the vast majority of them have been Chang. Yeah. And I, I love his art. I, I think it's so unique. And and I think know. that Marcelo Maiolo as his colorist is such a great pairing too. Yeah, definitely. Yep. Um, yeah, this was an okay issue. I It's nothing to... Like, if you guys didn't read it, it's nothing to go back and read, but there wasn't anything that just, like, made me roll my eyes, like, like earlier in the series. When I paged through it, uh, twice I was taken, I didn't realize that Bruce was wearing, like, a fur-collared jacket, and I thought he had this glorious mullet going on, uh, but... Well, we'll talk about glorious mullets later, too. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, but no, it was not, it was not a glorious mullet, it was just his jacket, so... Yeah. Uh, there, there, there was some shway in this issue, which I'm, uh, never a fan of. Oh, yeah, gotta shoehorn that in there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's that. Uh, that brings us to Batman the Shadow, number five, written by Scott Snyder and Steve Orlando, illustrated by Riley Rosmo. And uh, it's that time of the month, guys. We have to gush about Riley Rosmo's Batman for a little while. <laughs> uh, can I say that when I read this issue, I kicked myself for forgetting to ask Scott if this was remotely like related to continuity? <laughs> <laughs> I was so mad. Me too. Um, but yeah, Rosmo, man, that guy. No comparison. Yeah, when they get to Shambhala, mm-hmm. and and like that tree is growing out of that building and it's on fire. It's oh my god, that looks so cool. I even love the way he did like the shadows, old friends that are hanging upside down. Yeah, they just looked so like uh, unbelievably like nineteen fifties upper crust people. Yet they're having <laughs> these crazy conversations about superheroes and whatever. It was great. It was so much fun. Yeah, uh, this book they, is wild. Like Bruce yeah. on Bruce on the table with his like wound open, and Alfred's working on it. First of all, that's drawn incredibly by Rosmo. But then like 
the shadow's like batman is dead <laughs> bruce is like not yet of course not you know <laughs> yeah just basically like stands up and gets right back to work oh, that's awesome yeah it's it's so much fun it is we we've we see all this stuff every week it's the only like inter intercompany crossover i've ever read that feels like it could majorly impact continuity on both sides. I feel like even the idea of like of the stag not being one person but being a series of people, that's like a huge deal in the shadows continuity. This is all really big stuff potentially. Even if it doesn't wind up being hugely important for either property, it could be and it feels it everything feels really impactful. And that's so nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. And as long as uh, the Joker's being drawn by Riley Rosmo, I I won't get sick of him. I've I found out because I just I just like looking at the way that he draws the Joker. It's kind of a bummer that Rosmo is not drawing the next miniseries that these two are having together. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna skip that one. I'll give it a shot. We'll see. Yeah. My secret hope is that Rosmo and um, uh, Joel Jones are going to alternate Batman arcs. Uh. But we'll see. I uh, I can't believe how much I love that book. But yeah, <laughs> it's great. Uh, that brings us to Blue Beetle number twelve. Written by uh, Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis, illustrated by Scott Collins, enjoyed by no one. I, I I liked the cover. The cover's a really it's a it's a good cover. Yeah. So um, so, so again, this one I just flipped through. But did either of you read it all the way? No. Or remotely. I, I I, uh, I Wilkersoned it by my definition of Wilkerson, and so I I looked through it. I understand that there's some <laughs> Justice League three thousand stuff coming that nobody asked for. I'm sorry, you mispronounced that. It's Justice League three thousand bullshit. That's the official term. Justice League what... three thousand bullshit. Oh okay. Yeah. Three thousand and one actually. Oh yeah. Sorry, might be. Yeah. Zach, what were you gonna say about it? I was going to ask about the Justice League 3001 and bullshit. <laughs> yeah, it's com- it's coming, I guess. Um, because, well, there's been that character that has been... The Flash in, character, right? The Flash character, yes, who has been in this book. And then you get to a page where uh, these characters are talking about the fact that, uh, you know... They're talking about their past, and then down in the corner it says, "In the late lamented Justice League 3001," which it's lamented. It was lamented for existing, right? That's what they mean by that. Yeah, like, yeah. So, as soon as I saw that page, though, I was like, "Oh no," because this is going to be. You don't you don't harp on this character and show like they show the rest of the team. You know, mm-hmm. you don't show that without that being something that you're going to keep going back to. Just remember, when I got to the... there's only one issue yeah. of this creative team left. That's great. I can't believe they're using it to... I can't believe they're using Blue Beetle to do more Justice League 3001 stories. That seems like a gross 
mis- miscarriage of justice. That's uh, I'm gonna be nice to Giffen later, so I've I've got to rip him here. Like this is just this has been such a disappointing book. Yeah, I'm looking forward to Sabella bringing it in for a nice landing. I hope so. Yeah. Well, that brings us to uh, Detective Comics number 963. This is, uh, speaking of Chris Sabella, this issue was plotted by James Tennant IV and Chris Sabella and uh, scripted by uh, by Sabella. I did not realize he was going to be on this book, but I'm, I'm very glad that he was. And this issue was illustrated by um, uh, Carmen Carnero, who I think did a really, really nice job on it. I I may be mistaken, but I think didn't Sabella co-write the other uh, spoiler anarchy issue a while back ago? I don't remember. I'll double check that really quick. Um, I I think that the relationship between spoiler and anarchy is very interesting. I'm not a huge anarchy fan, as I don't think anybody really is like you know goes to bat for <laughs> anarchy all that often, uh, but. I think that it worked really interestingly here. It's interesting to see her kind of look for a new partner in crime, pardon the pun, in crime, um, in anarchy, and I think that they handled the character reasonably well. Um, Zach, did you find the Sabella thing? I'm looking. I can't remember what issue that was. It was the other uh, spoiler issue. I, maybe you maybe already said that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just can't. I'm trying. I'm like looking at the covers, and I can't remember which one it was. It wasn't that long ago. It was like, it was like the last issue before the. Um... Oh, here it is. Yeah, I just overlooked it. Um, yeah, Sabella was on that one too. Okay. So maybe it seems like he's helping out with that arc. Maybe. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. Uh, this also had some really great Clayface stuff. Oh yeah. Very good. Uh, Vince, what do you think of this issue? Yeah, I liked it. I, I liked the Tim and Steph stuff. Um, the Clayface scene or scenes were were <clears throat> pretty incredible. Um, I I think I, I I'm not I guess I'm not all that interested in anarchy, but it makes sense to move Steph down that path, you know. Yes especially considering the lat, like, I think this is a very logical step for her, but I'm just not like, I've got no affinity for anarchy. Um, but other than that, it was a very fine issue. Um, I mean, that's, that's just a personal, personal gripe I have with the character, but, uh, everything else was really solid, really good. Carnero's art was good. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I wonder if it's intentional to have Steph's spoiler costume taking on the Cassandra like face mask. Mm. I was thinking about that before. That's like a tribute to her friend or whatever. Um, I wonder how long it's going to take when Tim is back in the fold for Steph to return to the team. If she ever will. I think she will. Yeah. I'm, uh, I believe Sabella is also, as of November, co-writing uh, Supergirl with uh, Steve Orlando, at least for the issue in November. 
So it's interesting to see him picking up more uh, more DC credit. Yeah. I think it's great. I love Sabella's work. I think he's really, really... I think he does a really nice job here. Yeah, he's great. Uh, that brings us to The Flash, number 29, written by uh, Josh Williamson, illustrated by... Uh, there, there's two artists in this, and I, I'm, I'm not sure if one was doing layouts. I think it was just they kind of split the work down the middle. But it's Pop Mahan and uh, Christian Duce. And this is more of the negative Flash stuff. Uh, I, I'm just gonna come out and say it. I'm I'm not a huge fan of this arc thus far. I I really have liked this book quite a bit, but I feel like the negative Flash stuff is taking the Flash in a darker direction than I personally would like to see him go. And I feel like one of the downfalls of the later New Fifty Two Flash stuff was it was always just so dark and it lost a lot of the hope that I think is so intrinsic to Flash stories. And I feel like the last couple of issues have been just uh, just about as dark as I think Williamson has gotten with the Flash and his, you know, twenty nine issues thus far. Um, what do you guys think of it? I think I'm pretty much in the same boat as you, Brian. Um, yeah, it's just it's I guess like kind of an interesting concept, but also similar to things we've seen before and i don't really feel like it does service to kind of the story we have been getting um and it also like just goes into the kind of like cw nonsense that i can't stand of like relationship (laughs) drama and all of that so (laughs) yeah we're gonna go oh for three here I, i i feel the same way i i'll say this for the first half of the issue the the pop Mahan art mm-hmm. um, looks fantastic. That scene of Barry in the torn up costume in the ice tub. Yeah, yeah. Like the the way that that's shot from above and like the perspective and 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 just the little it's drawn with a lot of detail and that that felt like a very well considered and 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 detailed page to me. You know, like. I know, I know, I've seen the name before. Like he's done. Um, didn't he do the last Masters of the Universe mini? I think mm-hmm. through DC. I think that's right. Yeah, I believe yeah. so. Yeah. But I didn't realize that his art was this good. Like I've seen pinup work where he's done really detailed, really nice work. But I guess I just totally missed his sequential stuff. Um, this looks fantastic. Didn't he just do an issue of Teen Titans? Maybe, but it, but if he did, it didn't look like this. It, you know, I think you're right, Brian. But um, yeah, he did uh, issue ten. It looks like he did some of the. He split it with uh, Koi Fam. Yeah. Okay. Well, this looks he really look, great. Yeah. And I found myself through the first half of this issue looking at the art and forgetting the words that I read, <laughs> which is not a good sign. And it's something I would never, it's something I've never said about a Williamson comic before. So I just think that this is going to be like that one arc of Nightwing. Like this arc is just going to be a miss for me. And I agree with like the darker tone. I also think it not only is the tone darker and the subject matter more like CW, like you said, but it's also just, 
when I think of the Flash, I think of a rogues gallery that's on par with bat, like almost on par with Batman's. You know? Yeah, yeah. And I'm not just talking about the rogues, you know. And I feel like uh, this is Shrapnel. Is his mm-hmm. name? Yeah. I don't know. He's making like n- like a negative impression on me. <laughs> like I couldn't tell you one thing about Shrapnel other than he's like a fucking hunk of metal. <laughs> and that's it. I don't I, know. Um, like Yeah, I, I yeah. I have no idea why I'm supposed to be invested or why I don't know. I don't know. It's it's interesting. We've talked before about sort of the with the books that are shipping twice monthly certain arcs feeling like they are purposely taking you away from the main story. And I feel like here there's been very little Iris. There's been very little Wally. There's been very little, like, the Speed Storm. Like, all the big sort of pillars of this run so far are all kind of ignored here. And I wonder if that's intentional to sort of give the book a chance to breathe a little bit so it's not just one... like. It's not just one continuous story in the way that I feel like Aquaman for the first 24 issues was kind of one continuous story and Deathstroke has been one continuous story. A lot of these books, especially the twice monthly books, have have really veered off into these sort of tangential arcs here and there. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, let's take a quick break. We're back in just a second with the rest of our reviews. Hello, everybody. My name is Mike. And I'm Greg. And together we are Robots from Tomorrow, a twice-weekly podcast appearing at MultiversityComics.com. Each week, we take some time to check out books and shelves on Wednesday that are worth your attention. And each month, we dissect the previous catalog. We also have long-form discussions about books we've enjoyed, like Dan Clow's Ghost World and Jack Kirby and Mike Royer's Commandy. And if that's not enough, we also do creator interviews. Some of the talks you'll find in our archives feature Mike Mignola, Leila Del Duca, Sean Martinborough, Emma Beebe, and Greg Rucka. So that's a lot of content for everybody. Please subscribe. Subscribe to Robots from Tomorrow in iTunes or Stitcher so you never miss a thing. Robots from Tomorrow has hours of comic-focused entertainment week in and week out. And now, back to your show. And we are back with Hal Jordan and the Green Lantern Corps, number 27, uh, written by Robert Venditti, illustrated by Rafa Sandoval. Uh, we get a little bit more Orion here. We get uh, some interesting... Kyle Rayner, Hal Jordan interaction. <laughs> what? Some interesting Kyle Rayner hair. Oh yeah, well that's <laughs> what. What is going on there? People never know how to draw his hair. Well, they've never drawn it like that before. <laughs> <laughs> um, I uh, I really enjoyed parts of this issue. I I like when the core are doing that things. Be this book's tagline. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I like it when the four Earth Lanterns are kind of doing things in conjunction with each other. And I don't mean necessarily working together, but like people highlighting their specific uh, talents and going with it. And I feel like this book did a lot of that with Kyle this week. We saw Kyle really in his element and people like people supporting him so that he could do what he needed to do. I thought the idea of like stopping Orion's heart was very interesting you know, there there was some fun stuff here, but for some reason, this book just doesn't, it's not all gelling for me still. Yeah. I, um, 
Yeah, I'm I'm kind of with you. Like on one hand, this book is doing like all the things it could do to make me like it. it you know, this is like a Sandoval arc. There's new, new god gods, stuff. Yeah. It's super Kirby. Um, Sandoval does a great. By the way, like his his style doesn't look anything like Kirby, but the way that he applies Kirby's designs to his own style is fantastic. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. so too. And um, you know, kind of like you mentioned, Brian, good, good, like character stuff. I liked um, that they brought in. They kind of like highlighted that ex Sinestro Corps member guy. Yep. Um, because Tulo. I just love when yeah, Tulo, what a great name. Um, I just love like when the Lantern books are kind of like focusing on those kind of like n- newer or or like side characters and things. And with this being like you know Green Lantern Corps in the title they need to focus on more things like that. But then like, there are definitely some things like, uh, you know, um, Ben Diddy definitely hasn't, hasn't been as bad as like John's was, but this is probably, I can't count how many times we've had re- references to um, cosmic odyssey with like <laughs> John Stewart and the bomb thing, the yellow bomb, like in the past 10 years, like how many times we've seen that. <laughs> oh Yeah. I mean, Cosmic um, Odyssey is the best, but it is the best. But like they've this like modern lantern business have like turned that like into like crime alley level of like self parody, you know? Like I would say that that the crowbar is to Jason Todd <laughs> as the okay, yellow bomb right. is to John Stewart. <laughs> yeah, you're one hundred percent spot yep. on there. The, yeah, and the punches to Guy Gardner. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so yeah, there there are a few things, but I I do kind of like overall like this arc a lot relatively. Um, I'm kind of excited for the potential metal tie-in stuff, maybe that. Yeah, that's weird. Like, they keep talking about metal, but like. Yeah, and like nth metal specifically. Yeah. In this issue, yeah. It's funny because they they specifically bring that up, and yet I feel like. They could totally just drift right by it and pretend like yep. it's not yeah. a connection at all. You know? Yep. I know, I know, because it feels like this should have like a prelude to metal banner or something. <laughs> right, right. It, you know, because yeah. you know they would do that if they could. Yeah, no, DC would. Here's my yeah, question, I, and I, I think it, we talked about this last time. And sorry, Vince, I just cut you off, but uh, okay. I feel like we're never gonna know this. But I'm shocked at how this feels like it could be part of the Mister Miracle continuity. Yeah. Like, it doesn't yeah. feel all that off from there, and that really surprises me. I think it's a testament to DC. Like, somebody said, I, was it Scott Snyder maybe, where he said, like, somebody said uh, DC is becoming better about, you know, saying, you know, everything is in continuity, but we don't care if your books necessarily feel similar. Right. You know? Like, somebody said that. I don't remember who it was, but, like... They're they're getting more okay with using the same characters to tell stories of different tones. Um, so you can easily see how this could be the same Orion, even though the tone of this book is wildly different from that other one. It's not that much of a leap for like just have respect for your audience to be able to make that leap. Right. And yeah. I, I and what I was gonna say is I like this book a lot. Um right now <laughs> i you know well, 
I feel like at any time it could take a turn into Shitsville, but um, I guess my only criticism of it is that it, it, it feels crowded with all of the main lanterns, aside from Simon and Jess, in one place doing, you know, working all on the same problem. But I, I oscillate between what I want. Sometimes I feel like I want them all to be, like I want them all to be a gang of lanterns together, working together. And then there are other times where I feel like, okay, it's getting a little bit crowded and like they're all not getting their due. But I think in this arc, in this arc, they're doing a pretty good job of giving everybody their due, you know? Yeah. And, and so on the whole, I think it's working for me. Yeah. Yeah, I concur. Yeah. Um, did anybody crack open Harley Quinn this week? No. Negative. All right, moving on uh, to the Hellblazer number thirteen, the first part of oh, the ins- boy. inspiration game uh, arc, written by Tim Seeley, illustrated by Jesus Marino. Uh, I think we can all be thankful that there is a new Hellblazer creative team. What did you guys think of this first issue? <laughs> um Zach I thought it was just fine like just okay I thought it was thought kind it of was, boring Yeah, I thought it was passable. I thought it was better than it's been but yeah. I I I I didn't think it was boring but I thought it was a weird so is Seeley only on for one arc? Do well, we know? The November solicits have a different creative team on that's it. Right. No, that's right. No, I don't know if that's a fill-in issue. Right, you know, that's what's hard to tell about this, is if that's a fill-in, even for an arc, and then Seeley's coming back, or if he's just doing this one arc. Yeah. So I actually thought the setup was kind of interesting, where, like, so Constantine wakes up in a hotel room, uh, s- smelling like regret, you know, or whatever you want to say. Yep. And and then he goes to mess with the the AC system or the HVAC system, and a bunch of like blood and guts squirts out at him. And you find out later that he was drinking. He was drinking with this weird couple and this like strange chemist or something. I, or he or he was like a not a chemist, but like a. He was like a, a, he was like an alcohol, he was like a cocktail, yeah, 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 and so like, but whatever they drank, like, put Constantine out into this, like, blind stupor, and, and then you, you find out in the morning that, like, apparently someone had, (laughs) Constantine gets into a fight with, like, a musician or a rapper like a like a some rapper and he does like the curmudgeonly thing about how like punk rock is the only real music and he gets into a fight and then like he imagines killing this guy and then finds out that that exact thing happened overnight right Mm -hmm. and it was like somebody took the idea out of his head and killed this guy in the same way that he imagined doing it right right and I think yeah. that's a re- that's a really interesting setup, and I like that Tim Seeley clearly felt like he could tell a story that has nothing to do with what came before, 
and that clearly is not going to have any influence on the greater DC. This this feels like a one-off arc that's just a chance for Tim Seeley to tell a creepy-ass story, and we're and then we're all going to move on. And I thought that was a really interesting setup, but then, like, I don't know. At the end, it gets all weird. Like, you find out that that, like, spirit hunter enthusiast was isn't really who Constantine remembers him being. Right. And there's, like, a bum drinking something, and then he kills himself, and it really goes off the rails in the end. I'm sure it'll all be explained next time around, but, like, the book lost me at that point. Yeah. See, I had that problem with it, but I also felt like all the ideas were interesting, but the execution was rarely interesting in the issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what I meant by, by boring. It's just I felt like visually I've seen Marino do much, much better. I've seen Sealy write much better. All the ideas here I was fine with. I just felt like the execution of them all felt like it, everything was taking too long. The book felt overly wordy. And uh, I'm really disappointed because I was very much looking forward to this. Mm-hmm. I the one thing I'll say about it, and I may be like, I may like raise the ire of many longtime Hellblazer fans because I I'll admit like I haven't read a ton of the original Hellblazer, but the premise of this issue and kind of the tone felt more in line with the original Hellblazer than I think like maybe any new 52 John Constantine that we've seen. There was mm-hmm. that one uh, Riley Rosmo to bring him up again, drawn arc. I didn't read much of that oh, after okay. the first couple of issues, so I can't speak to that. So This actually reminded me of a less unique version of that. There, okay. there, there's even an image in my head, and maybe it's just me inventing it. I couldn't point to an issue or anything. Of of Constantine being naked, covered in blood, in that run, which is what <laughs> this, we get from this issue. Also, this this kind of this reminded me of like in the I think it was in the Peter Milligan run. There was like he got he got the um the like cursed rash or something, and like it was something you know just a very mundane like that. And that's kind of what this reminded me of a little bit. Um. So, I don't know. It's fine. Yeah. yeah. It's fine. It's better than it was before. Uh, that brings us to the Jack Kirby Manhunter special that also gives us a uh, an Etrigan story here. So, the Manhunter story was uh, written by, let's see who we have here. Was, was this a Giffen joint? This I believe was it was. Story and layouts by Giffen with art by Mark Buckingham and the script by Dan DiDio. Which, uh, it may have been a DiDio <laughs> script, but it still sure sounded like some Giffen talk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can, can I can I just come out and say I'm going to... I'm going to be really nice to Giffen. I liked this. I mean, that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Can I tell you, so this is reteaming the OMAC team together, Dandadio and Giffen, Mm -hmm. throwing throwing in a little Buckingham, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I thought this was the closest 
Um, I mean, Steve the Dude does a does a pretty great Kirby, but this is the closest to Kirby that you get. Like some of these poses, some of these scenes are just completely Kirby. Yeah, yeah. this is very um, much a tribute to Kirby's style. Yeah, and I loved the like. I loved how irreverent it was, but like not it. It was. I mean, yeah, there was a little bit of that Giffen voice in there, but it didn't. A little bit. Well, but it didn't. (laughs) I I mean, look at the word balloon. No, look at the amount of word balloons compared to an issue of Blue Beetle. I'm gonna. I'm gonna say that I like this issue less, and I think it's your fault because (laughs) because like. The, the dialogue between Sandman and Manhunter, I couldn't stop hearing you impersonating Giffen doing Blue Beetle talk, <laughs> and it just ruined it for me. How cute. I thought I heard his voice crack. Our little boy is becoming a man. That's yes. it. I'll fight before teaming up? Guess what? I don't do team-ups. <laughs> you should stay down from one lucky punch? I don't think so. Yeah. No, no you're right. There's... there. But the sheer the sheer volume of word balloons is a lot less. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I'm not like head over heels for this, but like I thought it was a pretty effective Kirby pastiche, and I liked also. Yeah. I liked I liked also that it was like it played like the he- hero versus villain angle, where like they're they're really kind of both heroes, you know. And I feel like that's a thing that Kirby's done in the past that they captured pretty well. And yeah, I don't know. Like what I, what I, like I didn't love it, but I got, you know, it's it's hard for me to get through. Like if you paid me to get through an issue of Blue Beetle, I don't know if I could do it. But like I got to the end of this and I was like, "Huh. I made it through that and and it, and it, like there's stuff that I liked about it." <laughs> Which is not something I've said about a Keith Giffen book, I think, since OMAC. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was thinking about that this week with all of the, you know, we had three books with Giffen this week. And, you know, I've there have been a lot of Giffen books that I have, like, genuinely liked. I, I really liked his Doom Patrol that he did. Um, I liked OMAC, although I think that was definitely, like, his art was, like, a big part of that but i feel like this new giffen that we have like this this is a new giffen right like this isn't he hasn't always been like this no 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 i'll yeah. say this about the old giffen <laughs> no i won't i'm, I'm not gonna make that joke <laughs> okay. I, I was i was about to make that that twitter joke um no. <laughs> <laughs> uh but no it's um Here's my thing, right? I, I feel like the the reason you want to do these Kirby one shots is to give people an appreciation for what Kirby, well, what made Kirby special. Visually, this book was about as good as a Kirby pastiche as you're going to get. However, I cannot imagine reading this book and being like, "I need read me more some some more Sandman and Sandy stories," or like, <laughs> "Where's that Manhunter anthology that I want?" Like. <laughs> I can't imagine wanting to do that. And for that reason, it does a big disservice to the characters, I think. Um, you you think that does a big disservice to them? Yeah, I do. 
See, I would say the opposite because like you're you're right. There's other versions of these characters now that we're more likely to see. So I feel like if you get one of these tributes to some really old Kirby stuff once a decade, I think that's I think that's nice, you but know? That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the disservice is that they're not giving people a reason to go back and dig deeper. Like, why would any human being want to read more uh, Newsboy Legion? Th- that well. <laughs> well, that one that was that was just an awful issue, though. Like, but I, I don't. Think the... I, I don't think this is good enough. Even though this is nowhere near as atrocious as that was, I don't think this is good enough to make anyone want to read more Sandman stories. Well, I don't know what you could do then, other than just tell them, like, look, those were done by Kirby. So if you, you know, tell a good story. (laughs) Oh, like what? I mean, I I thought this was, I thought this was okay. I I don't know. I guess to me, this doesn't highlight anything about those characters that make them interesting. Like, what happened in this issue that was really? Pure uncut Manhunter, like goodness. Uh, he's hunting mm. the most dangerous game, which is man. That, that is true. That is true. But it you know, I, I think I think this obviously goes to goes a long way to our our enjoyment of the issue. You know, I think if if I enjoyed the issue more, maybe I'd be siding with you here. I I just feel like it's really not. There's really nothing here to me to make somebody go back and appreciate Kirby's work on these characters. Yeah, that's fair. Um, we also get an Etrigan story. Uh, you know he's so hot right now with his uh, miniseries coming out in uh, November. But is there a character that is done more poorly with more regularity <laughs> than the Demon? <laughs> There's a massive swing in quality from writer to writer. Yeah. This is like the 400th time we've seen his origin told. <laughs> and for no yeah. real reason. Yeah. But it looked really good. Man, Steve Rude. He's great. Steve Rude is fantastic. Yeah. It shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody who's read Green Lanterns to know that Sam Humphreys wrote the script for this. <laughs> uh, yeah. 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 Um,. That's why I'm really, really hoping that uh, that the uh, the Demon miniseries is good. By the way, I have to give a shout out to our listener slash Multiversity cohort, Alexander Jones, not Alex Jones, not uh, <laughs> not uh, Alex Jones, not the Infowars guy. Because remember last time, Zach, we were talking about how we didn't know who Andrew Constant was, the guy who was writing that Demon miniseries. Yes, that is Nicola Scott's husband. Ah, interesting. And Alexander wrote in to tell us that. So thank you for that note. Yeah, you, that's yeah, good thanks. enough. Thanks, cool. Alex Jones. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. Was, I was not aware of that connection. Um, he's, he's writing a book about the demon? Yeah. <laughs> Is he writing a book about Barack Obama? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, this, this book did remind me of maybe the best tweet I've seen in like a year. And this has been a banner year for Twitter. But maybe it was like three years ago, somebody tweeted, uh, gone, gone, the form of man, rise the demon, Gene Parmesan. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I thought it was the greatest thing I'd ever seen. <laughs> Gene 
<laughs> exactly. Just so great. Uh, so, <laughs> can, can I tell you what my favorite part of this entire issue was, though? Uh, was it the uh, what, what does it call it? The Kirby Grabbers. The Kirby. Well, the Kirby. The Kirby Grabber part where he was showing you visions of the future. Uh huh. Oh, how fantastic was that? Like the rocket lanes of tomorrow. Yep. You'll get on a rocket and you'll just fly to wherever. There'll be a trans world tunnel. He's got it going through the center of the earth. Yep. To like to get from uh, uh, New York to China. To China. And, uh, China. And uh, and then the, my favorite part though is like we've got robots that will run things for us. Mm-hmm. But the computer is still like the size of a kitchen. <laughs> yep. You know, <laughs> like, he's in the Max Rebo band piano thing, and like, <laughs> it's fantastic. It's really good. Yeah. What I what a what a what a guy that Kirby. Yep. Happy birthday. The best there is, the best there was, the best there ever will be. <laughs> who, who was that? Ric Flair. I was Brett the Hitman Hart. Brett the Hitman Hart. That's right. I'm yes. sorry. That's okay. But no, I was always, uh, I was always a Shawn Michaels guy. Uh, heartbreak Kid. Yeah. Um, I think I'm cute. No, I'm sexy. <laughs> uh, but no, the uh, I feel like these Kirby one shots. We're we're gonna get into some weird Kirby one shot territory next week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it just the grabber is alone at the end. Just remind you the breadth of what he did at DC. Um, you know, he's obviously considered, you know, much more important to, to Marvel than to DC overall. But when you think about like the, just the variety of stuff, you know, he was doing pre-World War II stuff at DC. He did the first uh, run of Challengers of the Unknown. He was covering some of the horror comics for them. And then, you know, not to mention all the Fourth World, Commandy, all that stuff, but also oh. these, you know, Visions of Tomorrow, whatever. It's just, it's... It's incredible how much he did there in a relatively short amount of time. Yeah. When he was writing, when he was drawing for DC in the 50s, they said he was there for something like three or four years and did over 600 pages of comics. That's crazy. (laughs) It's insane. Uh, Staying on that Kirby tip, we are going to the Commandy Challenge number eight. Uh, This one was written by uh, Keith Giffen again. And illustrated by Steve Rude, we're getting just just a double shot of uh, of real Kirby enthusiasts here. Double uh, shot of the dude. Yep, the dude in your face. Um, <laughs> Splanch. <laughs> that's I'm reading a word. There's a word that somebody wrote here. Splanch. When Commandy splashes into the water. Yep. Uh, so what do you guys think of this issue of the Commandy Challenge? Vince, you go first. I liked it. I, I don't know what what I don't know what Giffen had this week. You know what it is? I think I want Giffen to only do Kirby stuff, maybe old Kirby concepts, and and keep him off of these books where he tries to sound young or when he's tasked to write teenagers and like like I'm I'm sorry, apologies to Keith Giffen, but he's not going to write the next new great take on anything. On a new, on a young hero, you know he's not going to revitalize Blue Beetle for you. He's going to fall back on the things that he likes and knows, and he's going to write really awkward teenage dialogue. But when it comes to Kirby, 
when he's asked to uh, not mimic Kirby, but like do do things in his spirit, you know, when he's asked to do things in the spirit of Kirby, I think it's good. Like, I think I, it works for me. And, um, and yeah, there, there still is a little bit of that weird dialogue that creeps in, but again, it's not as egregious as it is on, it's not like a vaudeville routine, you know, <laughs> it's not like Abbott and Costello or whatever. It's, it's a bad joke once in a while, you know, but like, I liked how I like, they kind of beat you over the head with it, but I like how this society has this book, the, the Iliad and Odyssey, and they're trying to make it make sense with this person that's entered their lives, you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I kind of, that, I think that's a really smart idea. That's a, that I think that that's something that Kirby that's in the spirit of Kirby in a way that a lot of people who who try to do Kirby don't really get, you know, like Kirby was very literary at times, mm-hmm. you know, and I feel like that's something that that Giffen got and, and applied to this. And I think the art by Rude, like. At times, it looks like it's like there's a picture of uh, there's a scene or a panel of um, Commandy like walking down the steps, turning his back on this on the goat creature. Mm-hmm. And I'll be damned if that's not like as close as anyone's getting to Kirby. Uh, you know, as far as like a pose is concerned, and the way that he the way that he draws a character in less detail when the character's farther away, you know? Like, yep. there were some panels where I looked at it and I was like, wow, that is so, that's that's as Kirby as Kirby gets, you know? And, uh... That was gonna be, my, my comments on this issue was that this, to me, felt the closest to an actual Kirby Commandy comic than we've mm-hmm. gotten in the Commandy Challenge. I don't know if that's necessarily a great thing. Like, one of the joys of this series is the idea that you're getting different takes on these characters. And I don't know if this did anything all that different with Commandy, but it was it was an enjoyable, especially an enjoyable visual experience. It it did look great. It looked really really good, but I thought it was one of like such a chore to read. <sighs> Zach, you're killing me today, buddy. I just, I don't know. Like, I didn't, it was, it was really wordy. I didn't care about, like, these two, like, factions. And then, like, halfway through, there's basically, like, a recap of everything that's happened <laughs> in the series so far. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was um, weird. That's a and, gi- like, that's like a Giffen specialty, yeah. recapping things for no reason in the middle of a story. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so, just like, I yeah, I I struggled to get through this one. I'll admit. I also think this is a series that is really going to read totally differently when you're not reading them a month apart. Mm-hmm. And maybe yeah. the fun cliffhanger nature of it will feel better when you're not having to wait a month for it because sometimes i'm forgetting what the cliffhanger even was the month before yeah this one this one was weird because like last issue like those parasites were like a really big deal and he like got bit by one and then this issue is just like oh i'm gonna rip this thing off yep i'm okay (laughs) 
I go last the the cliffhanger before this had like a dismembered commandy that had to be yes. saved, and this one had a parasite that was just casually taken off. Yes. So. Yeah, it is funny. It is funny because like, yeah, like I think almost a good portion of that last issue dealt with like, oh, you know, unraveling the cliffhanger from the previous one, and then this issue, it's just like, nope, one, nope, <laughs> <Yeah>. done. <laughs> No, sir, I don't like it. <laughs> I, I have to say, though, this this issue gave us a great gift, which okay. is the, that that we can now call Dan Dio Odysseus Dio. <laughs> if we want to, <laughs> that's the gift that keeps on giving for yeah. sure. The gift that keeps on giffing. Oh, Homer! I fucking love that guy. <laughs> he loves donuts. <laughs> I love the idea of Dan Dio thinking that Homer Simpson is the uh, the epic poet Homer. Let, let's be honest; we're 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 gonna eventually turn Dan Dio into an it, SNL Celebrity Jeopardy character. I think I say turn him into Homer Simpson, where he gets dumber and dumber each time we we bring him up. Yeah, he started off just wanting some frosty chocolate milkshakes, and now he's. Uh... <laughs> Frosty chocolate milkshakes. Yeah. And uh That's my best season one home. That's not bad. That's not bad. Boy. <laughs> uh yeah. Alright, that brings us to Mother Panic. Love you, Dan. Yeah, love you so much, Dan. You're our you're our secret stepdad. Um <laughs> that brings us to Mother Panic number ten. You written... apologize to my mother right now. <laughs> No, he's a, he's a secret stepdad. He's 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 secretly like he's looking out for us. You know, like he's uh, you know, he knows that it would embarrass us if if you walked us to the bus stop. So he just like drives a little bit behind us to make sure we're safe. Yeah, yep, that's what he does. Yep. Uh, Mother Pack number ten, written by Jody Hauser, illustrated by Sean Crystal. Back on that Sean Crystal. Yep. Back on that Sean Crystal, and and maybe I'm. Maybe I'm just feeling charitable this week, or maybe I'm in a good mood for some ungodly reason, but this was not as bad as the last arc that Sean Crystal did. I, uh, I'm i with you. Yeah, I'll agree with that. I felt I, like... Um, I still feel like this is a very oddly paced book. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it is oddly paced, that's for sure. Um, I thought the, to- the tone matched the art a lot better this time around. Um, the tone in the first arc that he did was very dark. And I feel like his art is like very good for humor. Like, like I always bring up that he was on a, I think he was on a Deadpool book at one point and the art worked really well there. And, uh, this, this arc was, or this issue was not as like dour and, and disturbing as that previous one, and I think the art worked a lot better as a result. Um, there were a couple of comedic scenes here. Um, I one thing I like about the way that Jody Hauser writes this is I like how she writes Violet like moving through society and playing her role that she knows. She's very self aware about who she is and how she's seen by people. Mm-hmm. And but then she'll have these thought bubbles, and they're like spa- they're used pretty sparingly. But the thought bubbles betray like 
how she's acting in reality, you know? Yeah. And it's it's often very, like, sarcastic or very sardonic. And I, I think that's a really nice touch. That gives Violet a little more character that um, it, it kind of it defines her a little bit for me. Yeah, I'll argue with all that. I, um... I think my biggest issues with this book is how it's paced. I, I think it's a very, very jarring read sometimes. I think especially the crystal-drawn arcs have been really unusually paced. And, uh... Yeah, I mean, this was better than the last arc he did, but I think this is a world's less enjoyable than the last couple issues we got. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know if I'd go that strong with it, but um, but I can agree with that. One thing about the Sean Crystal art and the pacing is that I don't I don't know what it is because other artists do this stuff all the time, but he will go from like one scene and then the next page is a completely different scene or point in time. Mm-hmm. And it feels like the book is out of order rather. And there, that's, be, I think part of it's because there's nothing establishing it in the script, you know? Right. Like I'm thinking yeah. I'm, there, there's a page where, uh, Violet's in her costume and she's sneaking in on that, like sleeping lady. And then in the very next scene, there's like the scene of, her and that girl at the at the home mm-hmm. and like they're being attacked by this like creature, you know? Or by these creatures. And all, and then it goes back to this scene of her in the costume invading this bedroom and I get that that scene in the middle is supposed to be like a thematic link to what she's doing right now, mm-hmm. but and to and they quite literally tell you like oh I became a monster you know and like right you know but like something about the pacing of that it does feel off and I can't quite put it into words but like it jolts from one scene to another with little to establish it and so it's hard to find your footing sometimes yeah I, I think another aspect of that too and I don't maybe this is just me but I feel like the crystal illustrated arcs are way less dialogue heavy. Like they're very breezy reads. Mm-hmm. Yes. Like I could probably speed read this comic in like two minutes, you know, Yeah. just because of like how little dialogue there is. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with all that. Uh, all right, that brings us to uh, perhaps the biggest book of the week, and that is Nightwing, The New Order, number one. This reunites two-thirds of the creative team behind, behind the Gates of Gotham miniseries from pre-Flashpoint that I was a big fan of. I don't know about you boys. Um, yeah. Uh, this is written by Kyle Higgins, illustrated by Trevor McCarthy, and... Um, this is, you know, an Elseworlds-ish title about Dick Grayson basically becoming a, a government worker that uh, takes down metahumans and that there are these inhibitor pills that metahumans must take now 
to remain like legally, you know, out there or they get arrested by Dick Grayson and his band of crusaders. Um, we were talking off air about how we think there's going to be a, a pretty big uh, range in enjoyment here. And we're going to start at the bottom of that range with Zach. Zach, why did you dislike this book so much? I'm, I'm presuming you disliked it. I did. I disliked it. Um, one, I just don't think it's like that interesting of a concept. We've seen stuff like this before. It seems really out of character for Dick Grayson to be the one spearheading this, which obviously like things can happen. They kind of hinted stuff in this issue that kind of leads to it. But I just like, I don't, I just didn't, I didn't care for this. And then another big thing is, um, I don't, I don't know if it's just his style has changed or if it's the inker, but he inked um, himself. He inked himself. Okay. This feels like a really big departure from the Trevor McCarthy that I've seen. This feels far less fluid. Than the yeah. McCarthy. Like I seen. loved him on Gates of Gotham and He did a lot um, of the New Fifty Two Nightwing stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, I really liked that a lot. Um but this feels feels blockier, maybe? Yeah, blockier, more generic a little bit. Like Um Yeah, I, I just like and even, you know, I really like Dean White on Colors, but this felt a lot more muted. You know, this just didn't do it for me on almost every level. All right, Vince, give us your piece on this. Yeah, so um, I, I thought this was okay. Um, the art... The art was a little rougher than what we saw from uh, Gates of Gotham. Uh, Dick has a hell of a head of hair. What, <laughs> like, what is is that like? Who is that? Is that like Patrick Duffy or <laughs> or friggin? Uh, it almost looks like Rachel Ghoul. How they draw his hair sometimes, <laughs> flaring out like that. You know, like that's a head of hair. Um going into a mullet at times that's the mullet i mentioned earlier <laughs> so i don't know what's going on like is it taking place it's taking place in 2040 so like in 2040 are the 70s back i don't i don't know but but you know i also don't think the concept is that interesting but i think i think it's fine i think it's in i think you can find a place for that in gotham city but the major question I have and the major thing that keeps me from enjoying this book very much is why is this Dick Grayson? Why is this a Dick Grayson story? This doesn't feel like what Dick Grayson would do. And I know that this is just the first issue and there's purposely a lot of mystery built into it. You don't quite know some of the events that have happened to get you to this point. Mm-hmm. But it's going to have to be a hell of a sell to to get me to believe that Dick becomes this person. This doesn't feel like Dick Grayson at all. The only thing that looks looks or feels like Dick is when he's flipping off of a roof, you know. Yeah. Everything else is like, well, I don't believe that Dick ends up like this. 
So they're going to have to do a hell of a job in the next issue or two selling me that that he made it to this point, you know? And I think that it's possible that it does that. I, I'm going to give it the opportunity to, to sell that to me. Yeah. For sure. Um, I, I, I did not love this book unequivocally. I think that the question that you asked, Vince, is that how, how is this a Dick Grayson story? I think that's the most interesting question about the the miniseries thus far. I do. Um, I thought the I you know I, I as you're reading it and you hear Dick talking about his his the the mother of his child that has left. I think everybody presumes that's Babs as you're reading it, and then there's there's that last page revealed that no, it appears it was Kara. Uh, right? Isn't that the uh, the implication that you got? Yeah, that's what I got. Yeah, and like that—that mm-hmm. that was a, a bit of an interesting twist uh, to throw in there. You know, I, I think that the reason that it's the reason that it feels so weird that it's Dick Grayson is that Dick is the hero that everybody loves and that everybody turns to, and Dick is like the most reliable person in the DC universe, which is why what uh, Dead Abner's doing with him in Titans, with him being the one to quote betray the team is interesting also because you think, well, if anybody were to do that, it wouldn't be Dick Grayson, right? So I understand why they felt this could be an interesting Dick story because he's the last person you would think to go narc on superheroes, right? I think that that's an interesting idea. The problem is to get that character from from the absolute disbelief to effectively making him the center of this miniseries, there's a lot of work to be done there. And I don't know if in six issues, Higgins and McCarthy can get that work done. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, but that said, I, I did, uh, I didn't think there were some nice character moments there. I was legitimately surprised by the, uh, the, the mother reveal of, uh, of the son. And I'm, I'm hopeful that the book will give us some of the answers we're seeking. Whether they are satisfactory or not remains to be seen. So can I can I ask you a question about that reveal? Sure. Uh, are you are you sure it's Kara? No, not Kara? at all. Okay. The only reason I ask is because if you look at the next cover, the cover of issue two, uh-huh. his son has glowing red hands as if he's charging energy in his hands so you think maybe it's um cory yeah oh that's interesting okay but i did i did think supergirl at first with the eye vision and then i thought that i mean they don't really have do dick and kara have a much of a relationship like i don't know but that's kind of why I i thought maybe they were going that angle just because to you know, shake things up. Yeah. Yeah. But see, you know, in like future issues of this, all those Titans characters are involved. I don't know if you saw that. But, I did uh, not, no. Yeah. So I'm wondering, I mean, I don't necessarily think I'm right either, but yeah, I, but I still think it's up in the air. I think you're probably on to something. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I, I'm I am open to this surprising me, mm-hmm. but I, I'll say this: I was really down on this book when it was solicited, and I enjoyed the first issue far more than I thought I would. Mm-hmm. I think I can say that. Yeah, 
I had no interest, like literally no interest in it. And so to read it and say like, yeah, it's good if they can sell me on Dick becoming this character. Like I, I feel like that's better than I would have hoped for the book actually. Yeah. Um, one more thing. Sure. Uh, uh, Shit, I just lost it. Sorry. <laughs> uh, what I was going to say is I have a uh, a Trevor McCarthy uh, Nightwing sketch he did for me in 2010, maybe, or 2011. And uh, the pose on it is very similar to the pose the front of this, on the cover of this book. Oh. Hmm. I'll, I'll try and uh, get a, a screen grab of it at some point to show everybody. Does, does he have insane hair? He does not have insane hair. Um, oh. But, yeah. The New 52, everybody kind of had insane hair. Oh, I remember what I was going to say. What is, why isn't this Elseworlds? I don't believe that term exists anymore. Well, why not? Let's do it. I agree. Let's bring it back. I think that there there's an argument to be made that when people see it's Elseworlds, they don't buy it because they don't think it, quote, counts. But I don't think people are buying these miniseries anyway. Yeah, I guess, yeah. What's the difference? I mean, like, I don't know. Yeah, horse shit. <laughs> well, that, speaking of horse shit, that brings us to Suicide Squad number <laughs> twenty-four, written oh, by Rob Williams, illustrated by who did this issue? Um, uh, I didn't hate their artwork. Augustin Padilla. Yeah, I, I did not hate the artwork on this. And Juan Ferreira. And Juan Ferreira, yeah. Can we just say this issue is really bad and then not talk about it anymore? Well, I, 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 can I say one thing about this issue? <laughs> yeah, go for it. And that's all I have to say, is that this issue settles something in my head that I've been thinking about lately, which is that, hmm, I know they're bringing us towards a Batman and the Outsiders book, but Katana is such an important part of Suicide Squad right now. Well, mm-hmm. here is how we exit Katana from the Suicide Squad to get her ready for the... Outsiders book. Good call, Brian. That, well, I think I think you're spot on. That's and, my and, only comment. <laughs> and that book is that book has a ninety nine point nine percent chance of being more worthwhile than this one. So yep, I'm looking forward to it. Geo Force baby. <laughs> I flipped to the last page of this and I saw the little thing at the bottom that said, uh, what did it say? Hold on. Begin the war on the superheroes. And I thought like, what have the last 24 issues of this been? (laughs) Like, (laughs) it's so uninteresting. Zach had the right idea. Let's just move on. All right, that brings us to our final issue of the week, Teen Titans number 11, Blood of the Manta part two or three here, uh, written by Ben Percy, illustrated by Koi Pham and Phil Hester. This has uh, the most egregious use of a character calling their evil father father since The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, uh, which I just watched, so I'm, I'm familiar with that. Uh, but we, we do get some really nice... Um, Aqualad as part of the Teen Titan stuff. We get some nice Garth appearance here. Uh, I thought this was a pretty effective way to bring 
Aqualad into the Teen Titans. What do you boys think? Zach? Um, I, I think I mostly liked this. I thought it mostly did a good job. I think what? anything. I think anything with the Teen Titans hanging out, eating cake, and like, you know, like hanging out in Titans Tower is fantastic. Like that's that's the feel that I want this book to have, all the time. And they're drinking their they're drinking their sour sodas there, and, uh, which is just beer. They're drinking beer even though they're all teens. Look, it's beer. What else is it? Ginger ale. You know that you know that Gar like smuggled in some beer from his one of his DJ shows. You're probably right. They're all getting lit. They're getting faded in the tower. Oh right. boy. Nobody's, nobody's going along with my underage drinking jokes. Uh. I mean, I I would think that Gar would perform, uh, sorry, would, pre- would prefer uh, something of the green variety based on his uh, coloration. So he's a. Uh, it's always four twenty in Titans Tower. Let's put it that way. Oh, whoa. <laughs> Poison Ivy making a little visit to the to the yeah. tower. <laughs> I just realized that Poison Ivy could have all the weed she wanted. She could. That would be a fun arc, actually. <laughs> Everybody in Gotham stoned. No, the poison ivy like uh, takes over the drug trade because mm. she she kills all her competitors' uh, marijuana growth. Mm-hmm. I like it. Yeah. Only wasn't hydroponic there... weed for the. Well, yeah. Wasn't there an issue of Hellblazer where Swamp Thing grew a bunch of weed for Constantine's birthday or something? <laughs> sounds right. I yeah, thought that was right. part of the Guin- part of the part of the Garth Ennis run. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Man, the green is probably the best superpower, and we <laughs> everybody else wants to fly, but you know. Yeah. I just want to. I just want to grow marijuana. <laughs> I will. Uh, and it, imagine, you know... imagine what if Kevin Smith wrote another. Uh, <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Oh, and you man. know that 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 weed grown from the green would be the dankest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Snoochy boochies. Uh, remember how Kevin Smith kind of launched Ben Affleck's career? Yeah. One of one of Ben Affleck's top three performances, Chasing Amy. Oh, agreed. Don't, uh, don't stand by that. I, I I would say uh, even Mallrats, <laughs> <laughs> as the as as the manager of fashionable mail. Fashionable mail, yeah. <laughs> he does have like my, I think the legitimately funniest line Kevin Smith has ever written is oh, in Mallrats when they they showed the sex tape during the uh, during the game show, and he says to the girl, "Who's your favorite new kid? Call me Joey. Call me Donnie." <laughs> And he goes, oh, please don't go, girl. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> That's legitimately funny. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Uh. Uh. 
like when Stan Lee talks about superhero sex organs. Of course you do. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the thing's dark made of uh, rock. <laughs> the term dork for penis is not used nearly enough anymore. Can we all agree on that? Uh, I really hope one day there's a, a Ben Affleck uh, biography written that is called like Ben Affleck from O'Bannon to vaping in a car <laughs> that goes from Days of Confused to his sad vaping. Because the sad vaping, even if it's not the end of his career, it's the end of his career, right? That's the that's the perfect metaphor. Yeah, it's the perfect metaphor for like uh, post-2020 13 Ben Affleck. Yeah. Man, I can't believe how badly they bungled the DC EU. <laughs> oh my god. You got a Batman who hates being Batman. Yeah. And not even for the stodgy, boring Christian Bale, Batman hates being a Batman, like in story reasons. The actor actually hates being Batman. Yeah, right. Oh boy. Uh, I, I, I've mentioned this on the podcast before. I am really surprised that when uh, Batman vs. Superman came out, sorry, Batman v. Superman came out, that there wasn't more of people tweeting the uh, the picture from the Mallrats credits where he <laughs> is Buttman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, They're like fake comic covers for everybody and his is Buttman. Yeah, weren't those drawn by Mike Allred? He did some of them. I don't, I don't believe he did Buttman. Okay. <laughs> he certainly did a lot of the Bluntman and Chronic uh, stuff for Chasing Amy. Yeah, maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah. Yeah, that's right, he did. Oh, man. Yeah. Bluntman and Chronic. Yep. Let me get that motherfucking movie check. Yep. Uh, that's, that's Strike Back. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh <laughs> Something, something going down on Carrie Fisher. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's she's dead, Brian. What it happened in the movie? I didn't make up that concept. I know, I know. Uh, so uh, I'll I'll leave you guys with this. So I was telling the boys before the show that I'm I'm watching the Star Wars movies with my daughter, and uh, it's my funny. Daughter. My daughter. And it's funny how like little kids don't understand the cruel march of time. When uh, when when Han got unfrozen in Jedi today, she goes, "Why is his face so different?" <laughs> because he's like he's aged a couple of years in between there. And then she yeah. saw Princess Leia and was like, "Princess Leia looks old." And I was like, "Oh, you are the reason Aww. that." I was, I was like, "You are the reason that Hollywood, uh, the Hollywood is obsessed with age." Yeah, okay, so. no kidding. Yeah. I, I think she might be hyper aware of it, too, because I explained to her before Empire Strikes Back that Mark Hamill was in a car accident, so he looks you know very different between Star mm-hmm. Wars and Empire. So maybe she's just like hyper aware of their faces because they made that comment. So maybe I'm to blame for this. Maybe. You could just explain to her that Harrison Ford smoked a lot of weed mm-hmm. and Gary Fisher did a lot of stuff. And Mark Hamill was in an accident. Or you could show her pictures of herself three years ago and say, gee, you look a lot different, too. <laughs> well, that's that's the really nice version of doing 
of what you should do. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Do that. That's essentially putting a down payment on some therapy sessions. So that, that works. <laughs> that works well. So. Yeah. All right, boys and girls, thank you for listening. We uh, we appreciate it. This is a, a highlight of my week every week, and thank you for joining us for this journey through some good, some not so good comics. Um, we are, as always, part of the Multiversity Podcast Network, and uh, we encourage you to go to multiversitycomics.com to check out all, all sorts of uh, wonderful things. Uh, today, if you're listening to this on Wednesday when it comes out, you can see Vince and Zach writing about manga in our weekly Shonen Jump coverage. So, uh, yeah, uh, that's the ticket. What? I, I'm definitely going to do that right now. <laughs> well, you better. <laughs> uh, but no, yeah, uh, go to multiversitycomics.com, have some fun with it. Uh, you can follow all three of us on Twitter. I am at Brian Needs a Nap. I'm at BJ underscore O-S-T-R-O-W-S-K-I. And I'm at SirFox89. And we'll be back next week with more DC3Cast. And uh, thanks for listening. I really have to drop a deuce. I have to drop an, an Uno. What's the number for jerking off? <laughs> <laughs>